It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. It's a real treat to talk with Timothy Stanley. He's a historian, a broadcaster, a columnist, an author of several books, including most recently, Whatever Happened to Tradition. He uh, might be based in Great Britain, but he certainly seems to know American politics as well as British politics, as well as anybody else. Timothy, it has been way too long since we spoke. Thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Good morning. It's a pleasure. So uh, let me begin with the scandal that the Prime Minister Boris Johnson is uh, dealing with right now, so-called lockdown gate. As I understand it, and please fill in any blanks I might be missing, as I understand it, uh, he's in trouble now because it's been revealed that he was throwing parties at a time when there were restrictions and lockdowns all over the UK and people weren't able to go to restaurants or throw parties. Is that about the, 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 the gist of it? Absolutely. Of course, it's worse than that. They weren't allowed to visit elderly relatives and care homes. But he, whether or not he threw the parties, there's a lot of dispute. He would say that parties were going on. He didn't realize they were a party. He just happened to be in the room when they were happening. And his chancellor, who's also been fined and also got in trouble, says that he didn't realize that the party he was attending was even going to happen. He just happened to be in the same room when it started. So there have been all these spontaneous parties going on that politicians accidentally end up attending. (laughs) But it's a very surreal situation because the, the rules were that you were allowed to be a large number of people sitting in a room doing work. What you were not allowed to do was to have a party. So the moment that someone turned to someone else and said, happy birthday, for some reason under British law during lockdown, apparently that became a party. So when Boris Johnson was offered a piece of birthday cake because it was his birthday, suddenly there was a party going on in number 10. Now, I think that's ridiculous. Most voters found it ridiculous. And I think many would be minded to let Boris Johnson off for having done it. The problem is... He wrote the mad rules that he's now accused of breaking. And that's why many people are so angry with him. Now, I'm not I'm not against castigating hypocritical politicians, including American politicians in this country that have done the same thing, especially in California. There are many. But aren't we over this whole thing now that society is back open? Can't we just enjoy not having to run around town with masks and proof of vaccine everywhere? Can't we let sleeping dogs lie and move on to the next scandal? What happened to the good old days of British politicians sleeping with their subordinates? I I quite agree. I I want MPs to be free to go back to committing adultery and theft and the good old fashioned crimes that (laughs) made much more sense. Now, I, I, look, there are two groups of people who want to bring him down. There are people who are angry about the lockdown rules being imposed in the first place. They want to see him suffer for what they feel he did to the country. And then there's those who just have hated Boris Johnson forever. 
And they hate him because he is a controversial personality. He is there, there are similarities with Donald Trump in terms of his political style. But they also dislike him because of Brexit, because of the various things that he's successfully got done. And they're just desperate for any, any anything that could bring him down. Could this uh, provide an opening for any of the right of center critics of Boris Johnson? The one that I think American audiences know best is Nigel Farage of the UK Independence Party and then the Brexit Party. He's been critical of Boris's overreach. Will this scandal provide an opening for him? I don't know. I think those people tend to be a bit more reluctant to attack Boris on this. They will join the chorus of calling him a hypocrite. But because, like me, they hated the rules so much, I think there's a part of them that can't quite get angry about him breaking the rules. The problem is that he wrote them and that he was hypocritical in not upholding them personally. I get that. But I think that that wing of conservatism would rather attack him on something like immigration, the cost of living, inflation, tax. We're, we're heading towards uh, the highest burden of tax in this country since the Second World War. Uh, uh, visit, that's a bigger deal. If you if you were to spend a few months here in New York, uh, Tim, you would be saying there's no place like home. Believe me. Right. <laughs> um, uh, talking with Tim Stanley, uh, you can uh, check out his uh, latest book, Whatever Happened to Tradition, which I want to ask you about in a second. You can also read his column regularly in the Daily Telegraph. Uh, Tim, the whole world, not just Europe, is looking at France on Sunday for this runoff election between Emmanuel Macron and uh, Marine Le Pen. It's a rematch of the runoff that happened five years ago. She also made it to the runoff five years before that. This is her third try for the presidency. Uh, I was one of those people that thought she didn't have much of a chance of winning the runoff this time around, but some polls are showing that she's within striking distance. Why do you think Le Pen is resonating more this year than she did five years ago or ten years ago? One interesting factor is that uh, a more right-wing candidate called Zamor may actually have helped to detoxify her uh, because her brand has always been the far right. But during the, the first round, there was another candidate who was regarded as being even more far right. And that made her seem a little bit less far right. She's also worked uh, on detoxifying herself. Um, she's, she, she's been rebranded as a cat owner. Uh, she's qualified because you have to have a qualification to raise a certain kind of cat in France, and she's passed that qualification. And so there, there's there's been a big effort to make her look less extreme uh, than many people perceive her to be. Uh, but also Macron has managed to alienate both sides of the spectrum. He is regarded by the right wing as insufficiently tough on immigration uh, and as just generally weak. Uh, he's and as a Big, and they dislike many of his regulations. But he is also regarded by the left as being too right wing because he's economically neoliberal. Uh, so Le Pen manages, therefore, to scoop up all the anti-Macron votes. But having said that, I, I think that the pattern for French elections tends to be far right versus the centre and everyone rallies around the centre. There's still a big cultural antipathy in France towards uh, nationalism. And I suspect Macron will pull through. Mm. Uh, with that prediction in mind, you know, in, in some respects, Macron's election five years ago was just as much of a uh, embrace of French populism. They elected somebody that's never held office, that rejected mm. both of the major parties in France, as as Marine Le Pen's rise was. I'm curious, and you've studied populist movements all over the world. 
is the trend in France towards populism, uh, as exemplified by Macron and uh, Le Pen, neither of whom is rep- representing one of the major parties that have won most of the uh, French elections throughout the last 70 years. Is that trend towards populism the same thing that led to Brexit in England, the five-star movement in Italy, Trump in the United States, and Syriza in Greece? Or is there something uniquely French going on? There is something uniquely French, but equally, I would say France uh, is 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 a bellwether on this. Uh, what I find in, what's intriguing is that many people, particularly in Britain, regard France as being sophisticated and above populism. And yet this, the pace of the populist change in France has arguably been greater than it is in Britain and America. In America, you still have the two party system. Uh, the current president is is the embodiment of the old liberal order, very, very old liberal order. In Britain, the two main parties that have always been in power are still in power. In France, the two traditional parties of centre-left and centre-right have collapsed in this election, and they've been replaced by two outsiders. And you're right, Macron has to be understood as a populist as well. He's a populist at the centre, uh, but he ran as an anti-establishment candidate. So in some ways, France, far from being above populism, is actually moving even further, even faster than everyone else. If France were to go the extra step and, in, and in, uh, elect a nationalist, it would have huge repercussions for the country because it's unclear how she could govern. Um, she wouldn't win a parliamentary majority, so she'd probably have to mm. govern through a series of referenda. But it would be huge for Europe as well, because although she has dropped much of her Eurosceptic platform, it, it would be a, a clear moral vote against the EU and against the liberal tide and the establishment in Europe. And it would challenge Europe's perception of itself. Uh, Tongue with uh, Timothy Stanley, historian, author, broadcaster, columnist. Speaking of Euroscepticism, how have things worked out in the UK Post-Brexit, I know uh, you've been writing about this for literally years, probably know the issue better than anyone. How would you say things have gone in a uh, post-Brexit world, or are we even in a fully post-Brexit world? We are now in a fully post-Brexit world. We have officially left. It took us a long time to do that. Uh, There are negative consequences. Uh, One is the situation in Northern Ireland, uh, because we have a land border with the EU that's becoming difficult to govern. Uh, The other is problems with supply chains into Britain because we've gone from people being able to just move anything into the country freely, almost no questions asked, to there now being a great deal of paperwork and uh, companies have struggled to keep up with that. So there have been negative consequences, but there's also been signs of good things coming out of it, which which are, are really about Britain regaining a sense of itself and its independence. So during COVID, Although there's a big argument about how much membership of the EU would have made any difference, um, there is a there's a general agreement that Britain's uh, success in vaccines was because it went it alone and did its own thing and didn't have to follow European rules. And likewise with Ukraine, again, if we'd been a member of the EU, it might have not made much difference. But there's a general recognition uh, that Britain's independent foreign policy, we're firmly behind Kyiv. It is about Britain sort of rediscovering itself and rediscovering its past alliances. So there's a sense of Britain being unleashed in the last couple of years. Uh, a few years ago, and, and this might have been what first brought you to my attention, uh, you wrote a book um, 
called The Crusader, The Life and Tumultuous Times of Pat Buchanan. I, I'm guessing in the course of researching that book, you probably read more hyperbolic Pat Buchanan columns than any person in America, including including uh, Shelley Buchanan. Uh, you know, I had Pat on the show last week, and he always has such interesting insights, especially when it comes to geopolitical affairs. But there's also always this chorus of folks that call in, that write in, that text me afterwards saying, oh, I don't know why you're giving a platform to Pat Buchanan. He's an anti-Semite. And these are the same kinds of things that Donald Trump used to say about Pat Buchanan years ago. As someone Mm -hmm. that has looked at Pat's work and his political career, do you think there's any truth to those allegations of anti-Semitism? I don't think he's personally anti-Semitic. No, I think that on uh, issues which are touched by the problem of anti-Semitism, he has sometimes taken positions which leave him open to the charge of that. That sounds like a very political and diplomatic answer, but I think it is that complicated that he's been drawn into issues where he's taken a position where he's found himself on the side of people who are anti-Semitic. Now, for for example, Israel. Uh, People who are critical of Israel can be critical for a laundry list of reasons, good and bad, and they can be motivated by anti-Semitism they can be motivated by care and concern for Palestinians. Um, in the course of doing that, they may well find themselves on the side of bad people, and they, mind, they may find themselves inadvertently giving courage and moral support to bad people because that's the position they've taken. Uh, so I, I, think that's, I think that's how that charge arises mm. in the case of Pat Buchanan. Is he personally prejudiced and bigoted? I saw no evidence of it. And uh, but unfortunately, that'll probably look people bring up quotes from 35 years ago, 40 years ago. This is unfortunately probably going to be a charge that dogs him until he dies. It probably is, although I think it's been eclipsed by the number of things that he's got right. Right. I mean, right. Where generally, generally speaking, yeah, the, the conversation around Pat Buchanan in the late 90s was definitely that it was, is this man a neo-fascist? Uh, is he anti-Semitic and anti, uh, anti-Israel, etc.? The conversation around Pat Buchanan now is uh, how did he get so much right? Mm. And I'm, I'm intrigued by the number of mainstream journalists now rediscovering him as a prophetic voice in that period. Uh, it's true. And everything uh, from uh, the Iraq war to manufacturing to trade, uh, you're exactly right, to immigration. Yeah, and, and Russia as well. Uh, he takes a view. I mean, there's a lot of things I disagree with Buchanan on, by the way, including Israel, including Russia. But uh, his, his views on Russia are now being explored and quoted by mainstream journalists mm. who are trying to work out what the right thinks. Um, and I, I suspect – look at J.D. Vance in Ohio. Uh, who's been critical of the of the Russian uh, of, of, the, of the war in Ukraine? He is not a Buchananite. He's not allied with Buchanan. Nonetheless, if you want to understand why Vance thinks what he thinks, if you want to hear an explanation of that worldview, you have to look at Pat Buchanan. Sure. So his his he, he's regained relevance, if anything, in the last few years. Yeah, no, it's a great observation. So tell me about your most recent book. I haven't had an opportunity to read this yet. I am going to order. It's called Whatever Whatever Happened to Tradition. What's it all about? This this is a, a, a history of and defense of the concept of tradition, which is a huge subject. But what I wanted to explain and explore and, and understand was why it is that it feels in the West like we're losing our tradition, that we're losing our sense of identity. And I wanted to explore how that happened and why that happened and make the case for why we need to rediscover ourselves, why we need to uh, show greater faith and, and, uh, and trust in our traditions. I mean, we've, we've just been through the Easter weekend. 
Uh, it gives definition to people's lives. These traditions bring people together. It gives them a purpose and something to live for, and it teaches them morality. It teaches them how they're expected to behave. So a world in which people shrug off their identity and their traditions, I mean, that can be exciting and progressive because we all like new things and novelty, but it can also leave us derooted from the past, and it can it, it means we don't know how to behave and how to respond to crisis and disaster. Well, what's the best way for people to get the, the book if they're interested in buying it? Oh, they can take a look on Amazon. That's all. That, I, much as I, as much as the company is loathsome, that's the easiest and quickest way to get a hold of it. Uh, search uh, Timothy Stanley. Uh, whatever happened to tradition? You know, I don't know that I realized. I, I probably did, but I may have forgotten that you actually have a PhD. But you're not pretentious enough, uh, like my brother is, to make everybody he <laughs> interacts with call him doctor. Uh, so uh, I, I must have forgotten that. But you chose to specialize in that advanced degree in U.S. history. Why did you choose to study and specialize in U.S. history rather than British or European history? Because I love America. Uh, I, I think America is a fascinating country. I've always said that uh, Britain is my wife and America is my mistress, my exciting, <laughs> attractive, younger mistress. Uh, it's, it's the most powerful, dynamic, fascinating country in the world. And I think the reason why I'm drawn to its politics is because American political debate is always about fundamentals. It's always a debate about what is America about and for. If you confirm a Supreme Court uh, justice, the, com the debates you have, you, you might find them repetitive and dull and uh, unnecessary and theatrical, but they're, they're fascinating because they're always a discussion about, okay, what does America believe in? And is this Supreme Court justice going to stand up for it? And both sides have completely different interpretations of the same history and the same documents. I find that fascinating. We don't tend to do that in Europe, where we take a lot of stuff for granted and we've put a lot of fundamental questions aside until Brexit, which was the, the, the first great debate in British life, uh, in British life of my time. But that's why I find American politics so fascinating. Mm. Uh, it's uh, well said. Well said. One of the issues that uh, is affecting all of the West, you alluded to the situation in Ukraine is the issue of NATO expansion. Now there's some talk that uh, Finland and Sweden may actually join NATO, and this seems to be uh, an announcement welcomed by most of the leading NATO countries. What's your take on NATO expansion in general and uh, Finland and Sweden joining NATO specifically? It wouldn't be happening unless Putin had invaded Ukraine. So his his gamble has horribly backfired. He thought Ukraine would crumble and that he would put an end to what he regards as NATO expansion. The opposite has happened. Ukraine has put up a very good fight, thanks to years of uh, uh, Western military support and training. And there are other countries that historically were totally neutral, which have now decided to join, which I can quite understand, because if you see what's happened to Ukraine, you'd want to be under the umbrella of NATO. Now, of course, the, the only problem with that is that the official excuse for the invasion was the expansion of NATO, and NATO is now expanding more. Mm. So if, if the long-term goal is to diffuse and find some kind of solution that both sides can live with because we don't want a direct confrontation with Russia, well, the expansion of NATO just brings us back to stage one. We're, we're back to where we were before. Uh, and Putin will use that as an excuse or a legit legitimate reason to continue to uh, uh, spar with the West. So I don't know. No, no, no one's quite sure how this whole thing will be resolved. Um, but the one thing we do know is that Putin's not going to get what he wanted.
Uh, that is uh, very clear. And in spite of the the ill-advised and uh, reckless manner in which Putin has carried this invasion, there's been a lot of uh, controversy over President Biden, President Zelensky, and even President Trump's use of the term genocide to apply to what Putin is doing in Ukraine. Do you agree with the three people that I just met? Is Putin carrying on a genocide in Ukraine? Uh, I don't know. It's a very specific legal term, which is why you've got to be careful when you use it. I suspect that part of the reason why it's being used is because the West wants to build long in the long term a case for a war crime war crimes trial. Um, and I suspect that's why the more sober minded people are using it, because they want to build the foundation for a prosecution of Putin. Uh, is it technically accurate? I don't know. I don't know. It's a very it's a very specific term and it may or may not be appropriate. You've got to investigate and prove it. But I think what they're trying to do is bring a charge. It's uh, going to be very interesting to see what develops. Tim, uh, I really hope we can talk again soon. It uh, always just flies by whenever we get together. It's a pleasure. And whenever you're in the mood to visit your uh, your younger mistress, be sure to come visit us in studio.